0: Welcome to From the Booth, the podcast sponsored by BYU's International Cinema Program. On this podcast, we preview and analyze the films that are playing at International Cinema. We're in the middle of the COVID 19 shutdown, but IC is continuing on with its virtual program, so the podcast will continue too. If you want information about how to sign to stream the rest of the IC Winter 2020 program, we refer you to our website, which is ic.byu.edu, and you can find out how to get access. Unfortunately, only current BYU students, faculty, and staff will have access to the streaming that we provide. But a good number of the films that will be coming up are available through other streaming platforms that might be available to you. So stay tuned. I'm Chip Oscarson, co-director of International Cinema. Joining me today to preview the films that will be coming up at IC, I have assistant director Laura Oscarson. Hey, good Mar-I-Laure. to be with you. Um, we're going to be previewing the films for week 12 in international cinemas, as I said, and we remind you that in our preview shows like this one, we promise to give you some background information and suggest some things to look for, but we won't be giving any spoilers. The spoilers will save for our week in review episodes when we talk about the films in a little bit more depth. The films we're going to be talking about today are Varda by Agnes. It's the last film written and directed by the great French filmmaker Agnes Varda. uh, The last film before she passed away in 2019. Fittingly, it's a documentary about her own work. We also have The Adventures of Prince Ahmed, the oldest surviving feature-length animated film directed by Lothar Reininger from 1926. And lastly, we have The Exterminating Angel by the great Luis Buñuel from 1962. Those of you who have a poster know that we had originally scheduled a fourth film, Be Natural, The Untold Story of Alice Guy Blaché. but we have some special plans in connection with this film, including a special guest that we're going to be bringing out. So we've decided to wait until the virus danger has passed and we'll uh, reschedule that for this fall. Let's start by talking a little bit about Anya Varda. Our reason for programming this film at this time were mm-hmm. several-fold. For one, as I mentioned, Anya Varda died almost exactly a year ago at the age of 90. So we wanted to go back to her work. But as well, we, during this week, we wanted to feature the work of several pioneer women filmmakers. And she seemed like a really appropriate candidate as one of the few examples of a female filmmaker that was part of the French New Wave. Marilor, what's so great about Agnes Varda? Why should she be a household name?
1: Well, anyone who has seen a documentary from her, I think, loves her. She's a very lovable person and very honest as well in her work, very herself, it seems. She has a
0: presence in front of the camera, to be sure. She has
1: a wonderful presence that is very friendly. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: She talks about her work in a way that is very accessible. And she's very inspiring in the way that she presents things and enthusiastic. This woman has an enthusiasm that's contagious. So I like her for for different things. And she's a very gifted uh, filmmaker. In this documentary that we're talking about, Varda by Agnes, she's very candid as well about her experience as a as a filmmaker it's a great retrospective of her work she analyzes some some of her scenes and has great insights but as well, we'll tell you, this film did not work. Yeah. I mean, it feels like I had the best ingredients, but it did not work. She's so honest and candid about her, her analysis of things. She's very important in the history of filmmaking, being one of the new wave filmmakers in the 60s. Not many women were there. So as a woman, very important in that... Um,
0: Cha- yeah, you know, that chapter in of film history. In
1: that chapter of film history, yes. One
0: thing that she kind of mm-hmm. explores in this film is her notion of sine écriture, what she calls, right? This writing with film. And she's inspired as a filmmaker, not as much by film itself. She didn't, you know, some of the people in the French New Wave, you know, there's all these kind of homages to their, you know, the way that film influenced them as a young artist and things like that. For her, her inspiration is a little bit more eclectic than that, right? That she's inspired by photography. She's inspired by literature. That's where she started music, actually and she is. was
1: a great photographer like her pictures are are very interesting yeah.
0: yes <laughs> well and, and and not just art is she inspired by but she's also inspired by cats and heart-shaped potatoes and oh, yes. and one thing that um, both her feature films as well as her as her documentary films they tend to focus on people in the margin which I think is an interesting kind of dimension as well. I'm thinking, for example, of her film *The Gleaners and I*, right? That uh, where she's looking at these people that that really do live on the margins of of society, and how she lets that inspire her, and and she gives them a kind of dignity, which I think is is really remarkable that she's she has a kind of at her core a kind of charity and able to see uh, the good and and the humanity in people and she helps her viewers to see that in really important ways
1: definitely that comes across that she accepts people for who they are and the her film saint Nilois and the the English title is escaping me, but portrays the story of a young girl. I think she. Oh, this is
0: vagabond. I think, oh, vagabond. Right? That's yeah. right.
1: And she's the one that is on the road. Usually, we we think about homelessness as at this time she explains as going on the road. Mm-hmm. But this time it's this young girl. She wanted her to be dirty. She wanted her to be angry, and this comes across as very powerfully in her film. And yet there's a part of us that look at this young girl and just we with a lot of humanity
0: right well or you think about a film like cleo from 5 to 7 this is her film from 1962 and uh, th- this is one of her best known films probably And, you know, here you have a woman that that starts off the film a little bit superficial uh, Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. It's about being seen, and she's very aware of that, that she's a beautiful person. And she's facing the possibility of a diagnosis of of cancer. She's waiting to Mm -hmm. to find out if she's uh, been diagnosed with cancer and you see a really remarkable transformation almost in real time going on in this film that creates this incredible depth for this for this character and this is you know the early 60s is not known for you know films with with complex you know complex female psychologies on film and and Varda uh, pulls it off Really, really well. I like the documentary too because, as you alluded to earlier, she walks us through some of her films, and and she taught me things about films mm. that I I thought I knew fairly well, and I was seeing.
1: Oh, and it's like a conversation. She's it. looking straight into the camera. Some things she's re- She's reading, so she's prepared uh, some aces. But like most of the time, it's this look into our eyes and talking to us as friends, and that came across. For me, in this documentary,
0: absolutely. There's a quote uh, she says, "I love filming real people. I love to connect with the kind of people we don't know so well." And it feels like, in a way, mm-hmm. that that's what's going on in this documentary—that she's connecting with us. It's not chronological, mm-hmm. which I appreciated too. That yeah. could have been a little bit boring to yeah. feel like you had to march through every single film. She moves a little bit more thematically, yeah. and and to me, it helped me to rediscover some parts of her, her of uh, her, you know, the work that she's done that I wasn't real familiar with, and mm-hmm. makes me excited to go back to her.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, let's turn now to the second film of the week, <laughs> The Adventures of Prince Ahmed. As I mentioned, this has the distinction of being the oldest surviving animated feature film. It was made by a silhouette animation technique developed by Lothar Reiniger in which she used cutouts made from cardboard and thin sheets of lead under a camera. The effect is similar to what you get with Wayang shadow puppets in China, but instead of live action, it's made through stop motion. And interestingly as well, she tinted the original film, so you could also say it's a a kind of a color film, uh, even though it's from 1926. Now, for those of of our listeners who are not real familiar with uh, silent film, the first thing that I always talk about with, with my students in dealing with silent film for the first time is that silent film is a misnomer. It's not silent, there's always musical accompaniment. And something that I really appreciate about silent film is the way that it invites you to get in a certain kind of zone that's not disrupted by dialogue or or narration and i think that that's the case here there's a really great uh, you know soundtrack that accompanies that was uh, created you know for the film Reiniger as a filmmaker is interesting that she comes into contact with uh, a lot of the who's who of weimar germany as she's already young she apprentices in the theater of max reinhardt who's a, a very well known uh, director from the Expressionist theater, of course, and she's uh, helping out on films like Fritz Lang's *Die Nibelungen*. That um, there's a, a famous silhouette falcon sequence, and she's the one who, uh, who did that. She's collaborating uh, in this animation with the likes of Walter Ruttmann, uh, Bertolt Bartosch, and Karl Koch. And Walter Ruttmann particularly goes on to become uh, an important avant-garde filmmaker. He makes *Berlin Symphony of a Great City* and some of these other these other works that, that really helped kind of mark this, this age. This film is very expressionistic. Uh, that is, it's, uh, the way that it communicates is through gesture, through kind of grand gesture of the, of the characters. And we're retelling, a kind of a loose retelling of uh, parts of 1001 uh, Arabian Nights. Other things that she's known for is that in the making of this film, she invented or, or helped to, to invent what has uh, later been come to be known as the multiplane camera. And she has this technique where she's um, actually able to make foregrounds and backgrounds move at different speeds or even move in opposite directions, which creates a kind of three dimensional look through this, it's kind of a parallax effect. And this is something that uh, Walt Disney picks up uh, a decade later with Snow White and uh, and really goes to town with. Some things that you might look for in this film is how animation maybe was conceived before it became kind of predominantly a kid's genre. Certainly that this is a film that would be, I think appropriate for kids, but it's in the same way that uh, fairy tales uh, or folklore, a lot of times you know if you go back to the Grimm's fairy tales and things like that it actually has kind of an edge to it or maybe not just kind of an edge but a real edge there's a little bit of an edge to to this as well it's not it's not saccharine sweet uh, at all there's a, a kind of, one reviewer described the narrative as delightfully chaotic, and there is a kind of all over the placeness to the to the narrative because it's full of fantasy. Okay. And one of the real themes that you can follow through is metamorphosis, that things one thing changes into the next and changes into the next. And she really understands the power of cinema to illustrate this kind of unique metamorphosis that takes place before our eyes. And insofar that she's doing this, that she's in a lot of ways hearkening back to an earlier moment in cinema, a cinema that we often think of in connection with people like George Melias, who embraced the idea of the spectacle. We we refer to this early moment in cinema as the cinema of attractions, this kind of dominant mode that... Uh, persisted for the first decade of cinema where it was more about the trick the spectacle that you could show in front of the camera was in some ways more important than the than the narrative oftentimes more important than the narrative narrative is important here but it's the spectacle it's what she can pull off with this really amazing artwork lastly i think the thing to to watch for and to think about is the way that this particular kind of animation is perhaps a reaction to modernism as understood as the age of the machine, this is about handicraft, right? This is about there's a real kind of art that is uh, that's being exhibited here, and it's not drawn art. It's that she's you know cutting these things out and and manipulating these by hand, and and surely there's a mechanical intervention, but it kind of resists some of the. The, the worship of the machine that you see going on in, in other modernist films. So these are some of the things to, to look for as you're watching the films of Lothar Reininger, uh, The Adventures of Prince Achmed. Joining us now to talk about The Exterminating Angel, we have um, someone who's been on the podcast before, Professor Greg Stallings from Spanish, a former co-director of international cinema. Greg, thanks for being here, albeit remotely.
2: Oh, Thank you so much for having me.
0: You always have really uh, great insights for us uh, when we're talking about these films, especially these Spanish-language films, which you teach pretty regularly. Tell us a little bit about The Exterminating Angel and about its context, about Buñuel, and what we should know about it going in.
2: Well, I'm excited to talk about this film, El Ángel Exterminador, The Exterminating Angel. It was the 25th film by Luis Buñuel. Buñuel was born in the turn of the century, turn of the 20th century in Spain. And he was artistic from an early age. In the 1920s, he lived in the dorms called La Residencia de Estudiantes, and was dormmate with budding surlist greats like Federico Garcia Lorca, the great poet, dramatist, playwright, and um, Salvador Dalí, the great surlist painter. And um, his he first collaborated
0: film was, with two in film, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. His first film was designed to shock and terrify the bourgeoisie in Europe, Un Chien Andalou, The Andalusian Dog. That was from 1929. It was a silent originally. And it is the first great landmark work of surrealism in cinema. Throughout his career, he's always trying to shock the bourgeoisie, which I'll come back to. And basically, you can divide his films into three major categories. The first um, few films he did in Europe, and then with the Spanish Civil War in 1936... He uh, moved to Mexico eventually and did many films, usually as a director for hire. He was kind of selling out to producers and filmmakers and kind of doing films that were popular that weren't really his projects. And then he gained momentum as a auteur, as an independent filmmaker in the 1960s. And by the 70s, he's making his final films in France, which are it's a return to surrealism there. You know, film dreams, they're bizarre, they're avant garde. So he kind of came full circle with his film career. Yeah. It has to do with Mexico in that by the late 50s, he was gaining kind of greater momentum as an independent filmmaker. He started calling his own shots. Then he did a great trio of films in the late 50s, early 60s Nasrin in 1959, Bidi Diana in 1961, and The Exterminating Angel in 1962. And especially Nasuddin was like his breakout film internationally. It won the international prize at Cannes Film Festival. And all of a sudden he had this kind of independence to kind of make the films he really wanted to make. And so you'll note that the third film is The Exterminating Angel. And um, that film especially has had a lot of staying power. It was adopted into an opera by the great composer from England, Thomas like It was an instant classic, that opera internationally known. It's influence and been cited in the films like Woody Allen's Midnight in Paris. I've heard that Stephen Sondheim was working on a project also influenced by the exterminating angel. So it's had a lot of staying power, I think, especially because of its thematic relevance. Mm-hmm. And so I think we can talk about some things to watch for and to think about, uh, especially thinking about the themes in the film. It's um, essentially a comic film. Brunel said his son would say in interviews and letters, etc. And yet it's interesting how it's using humor and comedy to kind of throw a bomb at certain issues or themes or social conflicts. For example, the use of humor to fight against social class strife or social class inequity or to kind of express class rage. Is a very kind of contemporary film. Can you think, Chip, of any films that kind of
0: – are shown this together with Parasite, right? <laughs>
2: exactly, Parasite. And so, I mean, that's very timely. But also yeah. The Chambermaid, which we showed recently. Right. When I was talking recently about some of the Oscar contenders this year for Best Picture, Joker. It's not a comic film, but definitely comedy and, you know, comic elements are thematized in that film throughout.
0: Well, and cool. also dealing with this kind of class, you know, inequity that, you know, that it's interesting that this is, of course, something that our contemporary moment is very interested in. We've heard economists tell us that, you know, that we have a, a pretty serious problem kind of built in the system. But to see that this was already being discussed in its own ways back in the 60s, which was, you know, considered by many, you know, to be a, a much more equitable, you know, period by, by certain measures at any rate.
2: Yeah, for sure. And, and that's just the 60s. Back in 1930, uh, Salvador and Luis Buñuel did their second film together, *The Age of Gold*, which was not a hit with the bourgeoisie. Which was full of blasphemy and <laughs> full of insults towards the bourgeoisie. Throughout his career, that's the theme he really wanted to stick with, and so, and also the use of humor to kind of lampoon fascism. Of course, <laughs> *Jojo Rabbit* and other films throughout the years have tried to do the same thing, but Buñuel was doing it back in the day. So, yeah. Um, And the connections with fascism is something perhaps to unpack in our discussion next week. But it's a very rich theme to be thinking about. Um, Other things to think about are surrealist kind of motifs. Buñuel, Dalí, Lorca, they're all very influenced by Freud's Essay the Uncanny. Freud talks about familiar things that are suddenly rendered unfamiliar or creepy or strange or terrifying. So be on the lookout for things like that. There's the expression, I know it like my own hand. A hand is very familiar, but there's a creepy hand (laughs) through the scenario during the night, which makes me think of Adam's family kind of things or Halloween decorations. And that's the kind of mixture of comedy and horror that Buñuel loves. And that's what Freud called the uncanny. Also, Freud talked about like doubles or strange repetitions. From the very beginning, this film is full of strange repetitions. Um, to the extent that early uh, observers and fellow filmmakers actually tried to edit this film and take out the repetitions thinking it was some kind of mistake or error in the editing. that Buñuel wanted these things on purpose, right? To convey Freud's The Uncanny. And also other things to think about. Modern critics have talked a lot about his kind of deconstruction of binary oppositions, the kind of oppositions that sustain power structures or, you know, the bourgeoisie, the burguesia in Spanish that he's critiquing here. And so just kind of be on the lookout for a dismantling of binary oppositions like dream versus reality, rich versus poor, human and animal, self and other, interior space and exterior space. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Another thing to think about is super key. Buñuel himself talked a lot in interviews and his son as well in letters about the use of time and space and the idea that linear chronological time, the time associated with the bourgeoisie, the time associated with progress is totally dismantled. He throws a bomb at that artistically throughout the film. Um, another thing to think about is um, this film, again, is part of a trilogy with two other earlier films, film back-to-back, Nasirin and Bididiana, whereas Nasidine and Bididiana or critiques of religion, this film throws a bomb at the bourgeoisie again. But there are three things that go hand in hand in this film and throughout Buñuel's work, but especially in this film, the bourgeoisie, the burguesía, in other words, the rich people in this film, but also the church and also the military. Um, but when we see kind of the police and the military, you have to think that in Spain, all these things are connected. Right. During the Franco regime, the police, military, also the church, also the bourgeoisie, they're all on cahoots to kind of dominate and rule Spain for 40 years. And it's a familiar theme in other films as well that critique the fascist regime of Spain. We think of Guillermo del Toro's Great Master Rick's Pan's Labyrinth and his lesser known The Devil's Backbone. Which I know a lot of students have seen. Right. Another thing I've talked about animals briefly, but animals are a great light motif, repeated imagery in Buñuel's films, especially in this film. The sudden intrusion of bears, of sheep, that other animals are referenced throughout this work. So symbolically, what's happening with that? Something to think about. And a couple more things to think about. The sound design is really interesting. Buñuel, the more he had momentum and autonomy as a filmmaker independence the less he was a trained or director for hire he uh, became less interested in music in his films in fact he subversively takes music out of his film so when there is music it's very key usually it's diegetic music part of the storytelling and so pay attention to the minimal music in the film the sound design is minimal but very interesting and finally the kind of central central themes of the film would be just the basic, in your face, light motif of a house, right? Under quarantine, mm-hmm. people trapped inside, <laughs> maybe <laughs> yeah, hitting a little bit. these days. It's a very timely theme. I was watching the film early this morning, right when we had the little minor tremor earthquake, and I thought, how uncanny is that, right? That this yeah. very <laughs> <return> this film <laughs> about right. uncanny things happening in homes and houses and apartments, and so I think students. We'll find the film very strange, but at the same time, it's something they may relate to a little bit. And to think, again, what is he conveying intellectually? Hitchcock said he's the greatest film director of all time because it's a thinking person cinema. And so what do all these things kind of, you know, convey or make us think about? So the house, and also the title, El Angel Exterminador, which he ripped off from a fellow playwright, dramatist, but the, uh, the dramatist said, you can take that title, it's cool, because actually it actually comes from the Bible, <laughs> Apocalipsis in Spanish. So The Exterminating Angel, something to think about perhaps for next week's discussion.
0: Okay. Well, this this is a lot of really good uh, good stuff to, to go in. And it, I always like when there's this kind of serendipity, you know, with the films that we've chosen a long time back, they, they fit together in, in interesting ways and maybe give us a way to think about our own you know, strange situation that we find ourselves now.
2: Yeah, definitely. It's, it's been uncanny with Parasite winning the Oscar for Best Picture and you know, this film and other films about, you know, the great theme of 2020, which, you know, is class warfare or, you know, class rage. So it's super. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Great. Well, Greg, thank you so much for, for being with us today.
2: Oh, thank you so much. We'll have you
0: back to talk about this a little bit more.
2: Excellent. Thank you.
0: Well, thanks for joining us today on From the Booth. Our podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU, which is supported by the BYU College of Humanities. Thank you goes to Jojo Hegstrom Pratt, our sound engineer, for help and support. Look for our Week in Review episodes for discussions about the films that have already played, where we talk a little bit deeper about the films. We hope that you're looking forward to these upcoming films and that you're making your way in this brave new world of social distancing. Once again, if you're a current student, faculty member, or staff at BYU, you can get access to our virtual IC program by following the instructions that are listed on our website ic.byu.edu stay safe and we hope to see you at international cinema the 250 in the kimball tower sometime maybe in the distant future